You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Thanks so much, David. Um, man, my name is Justin Whitcoff. I'm the youth minister here at Grace Hills, and I'm so excited and honored to be with you guys today as we take our next step in our Symbols series. I don't know how many of you guys were able to brave the storm last week and hear from David as he talked about the bread of life. Hopefully you guys were able to join us online for that. But David, as you know, took us through a road trip of the Bible, kind of just starting from the beginning and moving forward all the way to the end, talking about the symbol of bread. And today we're going to do something very similar, except we're going to be looking at the symbol of trees. Now this is a little tricky. Because the word, the Hebrew word for trees, which is the word eights, occurs 330 times in the Old Testament alone. And we're going to cover every last one of them. (laughs) Strap in, (laughs) we're here for 10 hours. No, no, we're not doing that. What I decided is that we would choose the two most important trees that we see in the Bible. But before we jump into that, I want to pray for us. Dear Lord, I pray that you would be here convicting our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would see our story in your story of Scripture, Lord, that we would see how this relates to our everyday life, Lord. And I pray that as I speak this message, Lord, that you would help me and that you would guide me in your words. Your your name I pray, amen. All right, so I want to start with two initial questions. The first one is this. I want you, what is the first time you got in really, really big trouble with your parents growing up? What is the first time? I know, I already see in your eyes, you're like flashbacks, like, (laughs) just like, oh gosh, I remember that time. I want you to hold on to that. I want you to hold on to that moment. Then the other question I have for you that seems completely unrelated is, have you ever seen the movie, The Christmas Story? You know the one with the leg lamp, right? What an iconic movie that is. Who's seen that movie? You just raise a hand so I know. Okay, a lot of us have seen that movie. Does anyone know any lines pertinent to that movie? Like just some like, as you think of that movie, you think of this one line. What would it be? You'll shoot your, I'm so glad that worked. You'll shoot your eye out, you'll shoot your eye out. I think about that line all the time. And there's so many other famous ones like, but I didn't say fudge and all these other common lines for that movie. But I want to focus on this line, you'll shoot your eye out, because I too was like that kid, Ralphie, and I wanted myself a nice, as he calls it, official Red Rider carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle. I wanted one, and my dad bought me one. And when he bought me this gun, he told me this. He said, look, never look down the barrel of a gun. Always treat a gun as if it's loaded or else you'll shoot your eye out. And then number two, he was like, be very careful where you're shooting this gun because we got a lot of windows around this house and there's some by the garage and all these things like, do not shoot this gun near any glass windows. You will break a window with this gun. So I was like, oh, okay. And I got the gun. And I remember my cousin Brandon came over, and we had the gun, we were walking around the yard, and we were shooting at cans and shooting at different stuff, and we were kind of getting a little bored. And then we walked behind the garage, and there was, in my mind, this junk pile behind the garage. And in that junk pile was this glass window. And I was like, oh, man. And my cousin Brandon was like, we should shoot at that. 
There's like two panes of window. You shoot at this one, it'll be like a target. I'll shoot at this one, we'll see who, who's more accurate. We'll see the glass as it shatters. Oh, it'd be so cool. And I remember my cousin Brandon made the decision almost immediately. He was already shooting into the window. And I remember standing there as a little kid. And I remember seeing my cousin Brandon over here. I remember seeing the window. And I was just so troubled. I was like, ah. Oh. Because in the back of my head, I remember what my dad said about windows and glass. But then I had this, like, kind of this other voice speaking into my head saying, it's all right. It's just junk. If your dad was here, he wouldn't care. It's going to be fun. It would be awkward if you said no. Like, what kind of guest, like, what kind of host are you to your guest, Brandon? Like, all these really dumb justifications. And I bring this up because I was in this place, and I, it's funny how young I was, and yet I still remember being in that moment of decision and the thoughts that were going through my head. And as we open the Bible and we look at trees, we're going to face a moment of decision in the very first pages of the Bible, starting in Genesis 2, 8 through 9. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so the story of the Bible starts with this paradise of a garden. The word Eden there talks about the idea of delight and pleasure. So there's this land of Eden, this land of pleasure. In that, there's a garden, and in the middle of that garden, there are two trees, one known as the tree of life, one known as the knowledge of good and evil. And this is where all mankind starts. And these two trees represent two choices that can be made. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Much like my dad saying like, hey, you can shoot at anything in this yard, just don't shoot at glass. God tells him, hey, you can eat of any of the fruits, but not this one. He has one rule for them to follow. But as we read on, there's another voice that comes into the picture. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. He said to the woman who was with the man, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. What I like about this part of the story is that Eve is really pondering this decision. It wasn't as simple of like, hey, why don't you go eat of that tree? No, God said not to. Like, could have, boom, would have been over. But instead, it's like, she starts debating with the serpent. Well, this is what God actually said. And here's, well, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't trust God. And man, looking at that fruit, it does look desirable. And man, it, it might be good for me. And man, you know, it would be so fun to shatter glass. 
And let's just, just to think about, take that moment that I told you about at that time you really got in trouble. I wonder if there's like a decision that you can even narrow down to that moment that you made that choice. And paste that over this story. Because here's just a thought that I like to think about. Of course, we can't know because we can't know God's perspective. But if God created time, then God is not bound by time. And so I like to think of it this way. At the moment that, God, that Eve is making this decision and Adam could be, in his perspective, kind of the same moment we all made our decisions to rebel and to sin. So the moment she's reaching out for that fruit and handing it to her husband is the moment I'm grabbing the rifle, pointing it at the glass window, and pulling the trigger. But what happens next? In the Adam and Eve story, it says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So for Adam and Eve, the consequences, the initial thing that happens is this. They realize that they're naked. They don't trust each other anymore. They decide to hide from one another. They decide to sew up clothes for themselves. And they're afraid of God. They don't trust him. They want to hide from him amongst the trees. In my story, this is what happened. It was a few weeks later, kind of forgot about the whole incident. My brothers are out shooting something in the yard, and I came and walked up to them. And they asked me to go, hey, um, did you like shoot at glass recently, basically? And I was like, yeah, and they're kind of talking about what happened. And, you know, I was a little kid, so they explained to me that what I was perceiving as just a pile of junk um, in my eyes was actually not that in my dad's eyes. That hunk of junk was actually a 1940s Chevy Coupe. His old car, he was very fond of it. And he actually had dreams of restoring it. I was immediately terrified. that one day my dad's gonna just, all he has to do is walk behind the garage, as he often did, and see the glass front windshield of that car completely destroyed. Ooh. And I thought about my options, and just like how I had no way of hiding the damage that was done to my dad's antique car, Adam and Eve had no way of hiding from the Lord God. So when God finds them, he questions them, and Adam decides to blame Eve, and Eve decides to blame the serpent, and the serpent, well, he had no leg to stand on. It's a Bible joke. Classic. So God curses the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He tells him that he's going to wiggle on the ground for the rest of his life, but he also says this really, really important verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a super interesting verse. It's kind of plagued with this mystery around it. What does this mean? We have this picture of a wounded but victorious person that's going to come from the offspring of Eve. Very interesting. 
And he says this before he deals out the consequences to Adam and Eve, before he tells them how this decision is going to affect them and the world around them. This is the other thing that God does. He banishes them from the garden. And thankfully, he tells us why. And we learn a little bit more about the tree of life. Genesis 22, 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. Out of the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So God decides that he is going to cut access from the tree of life for humanity. And at first, especially for the original readers of this, this almost might seem like a cruel decision. God said if they made this decision, they would die. And now the one thing that can fix their death, eternal life, has been stripped and taken away from them. That option is no longer on the table for them. Why would God do that? He could have fixed the situation. He could have said, Adam, just go eat from that other tree now. But he doesn't. And it's interesting that God would say, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet they eat of it and they don't drop dead. What's going on here? Well, there's more to the story. There's more to what death is. And the rest of the Old Testament is really going to show us that we're dead in a different sense. We are going to physically die. Adam and Eve are not alive today. They died. And their descendants after them. But in that day, in that moment, when the trust and the relationships were broken between people and between God, when they hid themselves from each other, there was a death that occurred. And we're going to learn more about that death and what it takes to solve it. We know now that it is actually a great mercy that God removed access to eternal life for them. But he doesn't remove that access forever. In fact, before he did that, he already hinted at what he's going to do instead. Going back to Genesis 3.15, that word for offspring in Hebrew is the same word for seed. This very important verse is God almost literally planting a seed of hope in the dirt for everyone of what is to come. And that's the seed that I want to follow today. All right. Congratulations, guys. We are quite a bit into this, and we only got past the first few chapters of this book. Our road trip is pretty long before us. But the interesting thing about both of these trees is they really don't directly show up again in the Bible. The tree of life is only ever mentioned by name in Proverbs a little bit, but that's a tree of life, not the tree of life. We'll talk about that. And then all the way back in Revelation at the very end of the Bible, the end of the story. And then the tree of knowledge of good and evil is never mentioned by name again throughout the rest of the Bible. And you have to wonder why. And here's what I found. Yes, they aren't mentioned by name, and I think it shows that it's not about the physical tree. It's about what it's representing. 
The tree of knowledge is actually something that we are very familiar with today. It's the idea of a test, of a temptation, of a decision. It's that glass window that looks so pristine. It's that sin that you came into your head, that thing that you did wrong. In all of our lives, we have those moments where we were enticed to do something wrong. And in the Bible, we see it play out over and over and over again. We see it in Noah. The next descendant talked about in the story, he gets drunk off of a vineyard after saving his family from the worldwide flood. Much like the garden story. We have David and his desire for Bathsheba. We have Jonah's disobedience to God's instruction. Over and over and over, we have people choosing to be gods for themselves, setting their own rules, playing by their own playbook, doing what they desire to do instead. So the tree of knowledge and good and evil is not gone. In fact, if anything, we're living it out to this very day. There is one spot in Deuteronomy that I found that I think is worth bringing up. It's probably one of the closest things we're gonna get to in the Old Testament regarding this sort of cursed tree. And it's just kind of randomly thrown in here in part of the law, it says this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. Now, the meaning of this originally was pretty clear. It was just a law about how to handle capital punishment, that when people are impaled, hung up on trees for the crimes that they committed, God is reinforcing that through that process, God is also bringing about a curse upon that person as well. But even in that curse, there is a respect to the body and that they're taken down and they're buried in the same day. This is just interesting because we see a curse again happening and we see this tree appearing. But it's still raveled in mystery as to what other meaning might be laid out here. So we're going to come back to this verse later on when we get a little bit more of a sense of why. What about the tree of life? Is it still present in this story when it's not just directly present? How does it show up? Well, I would say so. There is, like I said, mention of the trees of life in Proverbs. But again, they're not the tree of life. They are a trees of life. It talks about wisdom being a tree of life. It talks about the righteous man being like a tree of life. So very interestingly, it connects the tree of life to God's wisdom and to us following it. I think the most direct connection with the tree of life and God's plan is seen in the prophet of Isaiah because he keeps using this tree language to talk about this offspring that is to come. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, he calls him a holy seed. Then later, in chapter 11, verse 1, he's described as a shoot or a branch, something coming out of this dead stump. And then in 53, verse 2, it's described as a young plant plant. 
Isaiah is predicting attributes of this new tree that is coming. That out of the desperation and the desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem, that in that death, it's going to cultivate life for this new tree. And that tree does come. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man. He is the promised offspring from all the way back in Genesis 3.15. In fact, really interestingly, we talked earlier in David's sermon, he said that Jesus came from Bethlehem. Bethlehem had the meaning of the house of bread. And he connected how Jesus is the bread of life for us. But what town did Jesus get raised in? Because he was only born in Bethlehem. Does anyone know what town it was? Nazareth. Nazareth, the name comes from the Hebrew word Nazar. You know what that word means? Branch. So Jesus is raised up in this place called Nazareth. By the way, his occupation, his dad's occupation, I believe as well, carpenter. Weird, a lot of trees going on in here. I think, I can't do a summary of Jesus' life, but I think Isaiah does a really good job in his prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2 through 6. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The strong words about Jesus, and I think a good summary of his life and death. Jesus grows up in a world mostly hostile to him. Even as a baby, he enters this world as like this young plant. And the king of the time tries to kill him, a defenseless baby. The king hears that there's this king that, is, that has been prophesied about that's born in Bethlehem, and he sends people to kill the babies of that age at that time, and Jesus narrowly escapes. In fact, as he grows up, we see even more attempts to take his life. But there's this really clear thing here. No one can take the life from Jesus. He gives it up willingly. And even when there was times where they wanted to kill him right then and there, he simply disappeared for his time had not come. He knew when, where, and how he was meant to die and give up his life. So we beat him and we mocked him even though he was innocent, even though he was the God of the universe, we hung him on a cross, the most humiliating and painful way to kill someone. Not only was it the worst of capital punishment mankind had, but the Bible itself tells us the curse of God would have been on him all the way back in Deuteronomy. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. 
The word for tree also stands for the word for wood. That cross represents a new kind of tree, a cursed tree. And I'm just setting the scene for what's going to be a new decision, a new moment in history. And that's the moment of the cross. We see a picture where Jesus is on the cross, suffering for us, soon to die. And next to him are two criminals, two thieves. And these thieves mock him. They join in in humiliating him, even though they're in the same spot as him right now, hanging on a cross. But Jesus says these words. In the middle of being mocked, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this triggers something in one of the criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged on the... Hanged, railed at him, saying, This is Luke 23, 39, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is drawing a thread that reaches all the way back to the garden of paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. We got to think about what this thief realized. One, we knew he had sinned, just as everyone in here has sinned. We can relate to him being on that cross. He knew it was justified that he would be put to death and that God's curse would be on him. He knew that Jesus did nothing wrong, that he lived a sinless life. He believed Jesus to be a king. He talks about Jesus' kingdom. He believed in what Jesus was saying. Even though Jesus doesn't look like a king right now, he believed that Jesus was. And the last one is he recognized his need for forgiveness. When Jesus said those words, I imagine this he said, he's willing to forgive even me. Jesus is the new tree of life, new access to eternal life for those that put their faith in him. And this is so much better than the tree of life we see in the garden because this tree of life solves our other need for spiritual life. Because coupled with the tree of life is forgiveness. God gave us access to life from our physical death, but most importantly, he gave us a way in which our spiritual death, our sins could be atoned for and forgiven. How horrible would it be to live eternally and yet be separated from God? 
that we would still be dead spiritually to him. That's not paradise. The idea of paradise was not rooted in the fact that there were a bunch of trees and fruit to eat, that there was an all-you-can-eat buffet. It wasn't that. It wasn't the beautiful rivers. It was none of that. It was the relationship we had with God one that we would desire over and over. They would build temple and tabernacles with tree of life imagery in them because it was, it was God's presence here on the earth, but there was still this separation, this heavy, thick curtain between us and the tree of life and everlasting life with God. We were separated, but when Christ died and gave his perfect life for us so we could be spiritually alive and physically alive, that curtain tore, that separation was no more. You now have access to the life that you need. Because here's the thing, we do live in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We live lives where we think our morality matters. And the Bible makes it very clear that it doesn't matter how much good you do. If you are not connected to Jesus, it's worth nothing for your spiritual life. You are still dead to your sins and your transgressions. There is no way for you to to do good to make up for the bad you've done. God's perfect standard is perfection and only Christ could meet that and he did it for you. And the curse that you deserved, he took that on himself for you. John 15, 4 says this. It talks about Jesus as this vine that we are connected to. It says, remain in me and I will remain in you. This is Jesus talking. No branch can bear fruit that is good works, good deeds. By itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A dead person can't do good. They need life first. And then they can do good again. And Jesus makes it clear he is the only way, the only access to that life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like that gate to the garden, that is Jesus. He is the door. He is the tree of life itself. It is his leaves that provide healing for the nations, as we're going to see in Revelation. Guys, if, you, if this is new for you, if you haven't been like that thief on the cross where you've come to Jesus and you, t- and you just confessed, I am a sinner. I deserve God's curse. And Lord, forgive me. Please. I put my life in you. I trust in you and what you did, that what you did was enough to cover my sins. If you haven't had moments like that, if you're not living... If you don't feel Jesus' life come in and invade your dry bones, I want to encourage you to just, after service, let everyone leave for the fellowship hall and just stay here and let Pastor Simon or me or anyone on staff just come and talk to you about that. Because we all have decisions to make and we've all, we've all sinned but you have access to one more decision, and that's will you accept Jesus' life for your own? 
Will you believe in Jesus? There's a lot of us in this room that have made that decision already. And I want to encourage you. You have life now. You can live rightly. Do you know how the Bible tends to describe people living righteously by trusting in Jesus? In the New Testament especially, they're called trees. That is the only symbol that we're gonna be talking about that in some way gets applied directly to us as well. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 puts it this way. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. Our life is found in abiding in God's word, abiding in Jesus. We meditate on it. We let it sink deep into our hearts and into our lives. It brings life to our spirits. If we can stay consistent, we become like a tree that is planted by streams of water, has everything it needs. It will never dry out or look dead, but stay forever vibrant with life. We yield our fruit, our good works, our good lives consistently. We are dependable for people. We are unchanging regardless of whatever environment we in. We hold fast to God. And in living a life like that, there's a blessing for us. I never told you the end of my story, did I? See, I'm very thankful that my dad is a man much like this tree recorded in Psalm. As I grew up, I would see him reading his Bible daily. So in the moment that I came to him shaking in fear about shooting out that window of his car, he was very, very upset. And I know it took probably everything in him not to discipline me right then and there. But instead, he sent me to my room, and after a few moments, he came in and he told me that because I confessed what I had done was wrong and I had asked for his forgiveness, he would forgive me. And I think my dad's treatment of me comes from the fact that he knew that Jesus had forgiven him too. It's not always easy for us to live a life that reflects Jesus in a world of sin. But know this, in Revelations 2, 2 through 8, it says this, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That we can look forward to. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people that are firmly rooted in your word, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water, that we would be connected to Jesus, the tree of eternal life, and that all our ways, we would reflect Jesus' love and forgiveness to those around us. Lord, if there are people in this room that haven't put their faith in you, that haven't received your forgiveness, Lord, I pray 
that they would come to you today.